1969, Penny Chenery, the uh, an owner of horses, an owner of a horse farm in uh, in Virginia, issued into a, a deal with one of her neighbors. A very well-known racehorse named Bold Ruler was having two foals, and of the two, uh, there would be a decision between Chenery and the family who owned Bold Ruler. And the decision would be which of the two calves or the two uh, foals that they would receive. So they took out a coin and flipped it. The, the coin toss landed not in favor of Chenery, the other owner. And he chose the first foal for himself. So Chenery had to settle for Secretariat, a horse that would go on to win the Triple Crown and hold, still holds all the records for the Kentucky Derby and several other races. So I would say she came out on top on that toss of the coin. And sometimes we use that expression, the flip of the coin, the roll of the dice. It, it means that we are leaving something up to chance, up to fate. For instance, in modern day football games, they often begin with a coin toss to decide which team will first receive the ball. Now that's to, to simply have a fair way of saying, you know, which team, and we don't choose favorites. But for many people, it's been a matter of fate. Let's let fate decide is the idea. So let's flip the coin. Let's roll the dice. Let's draw straws and let fate determine what will happen. And the idea of a coin toss actually goes back to ancient Rome. We talked today about heads and tails. And in Rome, they would say heads and ships because their coins on one side had a face and the other side the bow of a ship. And it said that Julius Caesar often made decisions by flipping a coin. And in Roman society, there was a great emphasis and in many ancient societies upon fate. Let fate determine what will take place. Uh, it's the idea that there's this cosmic force out there that somehow allows certain things to happen. And, and maybe people will talk about it in terms of luck. You get lucky. And sometimes you don't get lucky. And this, of course, leads into superstition. You try and do things in order to um, have fate align with you, you know, to, to improve your chances of good luck. You don't want to break a mirror, right? Because then you'll have seven years of bad luck or, or walk underneath a ladder or cross a black cat. And so superstition has slipped in as sort of the, the modern expression, if you will, of this idea of fate. Superstition and the belief in, in fate are common throughout the history of the world. And all of these practices, including flipping coins, rolling dice, drawing stars, casting lots, were all expressions of that. The question is, what does fate have to do with it? For those who recognize that God is in control, there's no room for superstitious nonsense. Let me say it like this. Our destiny is not determined by fate. Our days are ordained by our loving Father. Our days are ordained by our loving Father. Our, our destiny is not left up to mere chance or luck. It is the direction of God. Listen to what it says in Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance yet unformed, and in your book were written the days fashioned for me, when as yet none of them were. So, so our days and our steps, God's plan for us, is not just mere chance. It's not just luck of the cards. 
It is God's ordained plan. We come now to the conclusion in the book of Esther. And what we have seen in this book is both the superstitious belief in fate, as well as the unseen and the unmentioned hand of God in history. You see, in ancient Persia, there was the same belief that was true in a lot of ancient societies of, of fate and destiny. And that's why we saw earlier in the book, Haman cast lots. He rolled dice. And essentially, that's what the purr was. It was a dice, a six-sided dice that you would roll, and it would have markings on it to indicate yes or no. Kind of like somebody might use a, a magic eight ball. You shake it up, and it gives you an answer. Well, the dice was used like that. And so Haman had cast the lots. The question is, why? Why would he bother to leave such an important decision up to fate? Well, again, you have to go back to Persian culture. There was this great emphasis on the gods and, and fate and destiny. So you didn't want to just do something and then have the gods align against you. You wanted to cast the lot and see what the gods would say and see if they would favor you with, with good luck. And so that's what Haman did. But what we've seen in the book of Esther is that history is not just blind chance. All throughout Esther, we have seen over and over again that the events that unfold here are not just random chance. There's a God who, though unmentioned, unnamed in the book, is guiding history. And by the way, the same is true in your life. Your destiny is not determined by just the luck of the cards or by the way things just happen to turn out, but rather God is directing your life. As we close out the book of Esther, I want us to see it's not just the roll of the dice. God is in control. And I want us to pick up three lessons that we learned here at the end of Esther. And we will go from middle of Esther 9 through chapter 10 in the end of the book. The first lesson is this. The evidence of God's loving care abounds. Evidence of God's loving care abounds. Life sometimes can feel like the book of Esther reads. In other words, there may be times when it seems like God is nowhere around, that, that life is just happening, events are taking place with no real reason or rhyme to them, and we wonder, God, what's this all leading towards? But I still believe there is a abounding evidence in your life and in mine that God is not absent and that his loving care is evident. The day had arrived in chapter 9 for the day of Haman's decree. All the Jews would be under the ban of death. And on that day, the 13th of Adar, the Jewish people rose up. Remember, Mordecai had been exalted. He had issued a counter-decree and said, no, the Jews will be able to defend themselves. They couldn't negate the first law the king had made, but they made a counter-decree. Now, when the day arrives, the Jewish people have victory. And we see them rising up to defend themselves. So we see first the victory that they have. Look at verse 16 of chapter 9. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So the date, the 13th of Adar, Usually on our calendar, this would fall in either the month of February or March. But the initial edict from Haman 
was issued 12 months before. So, so 12 months ago, the Jewish people had received news that on this day, if you're still here, you will be a, a target for all kinds of violence. And so the people, the Jewish people, were concerned, perplexed, wondering, what have we done wrong? Why are we being targeted like this? Well, a few months pass, and another edict goes out from the king. This time, it's good news for the Jewish people. That when that date comes, you don't have to sit and, and take the punishment and the abuse of your neighbors. You can actually rise up and defend yourself. And, and the victory was staggering. Look at it in verse 16. They conquered and killed 75,000 of their enemies. Which seems like a tremendous number. And it is. But it's nothing compared to what the number of Jews who would have been slaughtered had Haman's decree been carried out. Furthermore, in a, in a kingdom of 50 to 100 million people, 75,000, you think about it, you add it up, 500 in this city, 500 in that town, uh, a couple of hundred here and there, and eventually it adds up. We get this number, 75,000. But it was a, a stunning defi- uh, victory for the Jewish people. They vanquished all those who had come against them. And isn't it surprising that after Mordecai's second edict, that there were still enough people who hated the Jews that despite the fact that they knew it was going to be an uphill battle, they went and tried to loot and kill their Jewish neighbors anyway. Just shows how deep the hatred here goes. But the victory breaks way into celebration. And we see this also. Go look at verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 18. But the Jews who were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as the 14th. And on the 15th day of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Verse 19. Therefore, the, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. Sounds a little bit like Christmas in the celebration. Think of Christmas being the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas is a time for joy and festivity, food and friends, gifts. Well, that was Purim for these Jews, this this holiday, this celebration of all that God had delivered them from. And it starts off as just spontaneous celebration. After this tremendous day has passed, there's this sense of overwhelming relief. It's, it's kind of like when the Allied forces liberated Europe during the Second World War. The American troops and the British troops would come through, and, and the villagers from these French towns or Belgian cities would come out with bottles of wine and, and uh, celebration, laughing and dancing in the streets because their deliverance had come. That's the same type of feeling we have here with the Jews. They're celebrating this great Deliverance they've experienced. And you notice there's a, a slight discrepancy in the dating here. Uh, it says the Jews in the unwalled cities celebrate the 14th. The Jews in Susa celebrated the 15th. That's because, if you remember, Esther extended the battle in Susa another day to give the Jews a decisive victory. And for that reason, even to this very day, the city of Jerusalem celebrates the holiday of Purim. 
on the 15th, whereas the rest of Israel celebrates it on the 14th. This joyful celebration included feasting and giving gifts. I wonder how we would celebrate our great deliverance. We think of Christmas, I already mentioned. That's to remember the birth of Christ, the coming of our Savior, our deliverer into the world. That's the point, to celebrate what God has done. And there's nothing greater God has done. If the Jews could look back to Esther as being a pivotal moment when God stepped in and delivered them, saved them. Certainly we as Christians look back, not to Esther, but primarily to the cross. And see how God won the victory. Christ delivered and saved us. Here's the point though, I want to make. The deliverance that God had brought was evidence of his loving care. The Jews had one more reason to trust in their God, one more evidence that God cared for them and loved them. It's not just Esther. All throughout Israel's history, there are abounding examples of the fact that God loved them and cared for them. Think of Egypt. God sent the plagues upon Pharaoh and brought them up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. That was an evidence of God's loving care. When God provided manna in the wilderness for them, it was an evidence of God's loving care. When God brought them into the land and defeated their enemies from before them, that was God's loving care. When Israel finally was exiled in Babylon, it was an evidence of God's loving care when God brought them back to the land just as he had promised. So as you go through Israel's history, it's like, there is time after time repeated evidence of God's care. And I want to just ask us this morning to step back and look at your life for a second. And you may not have noticed it at the time, but now that you're looking back, you say, you know what? I can see where God protected me there. I see where he guided me there. I see how he, he really got me out of that situation. And I look back and I see the evidence of God's loving care. And I think if we're honest, we would say it abounds. There's a lot of evidence that God cares for us and loves us, even in our own personal history. You see, that, that loving care abounds. For the follower of Christ, our life is not just the roll of the dice. It's not just some of us get lucky and some of us don't. It's about God's kindness and goodness. The Psalms say, taste and see that the Lord is good. The evidence of our life is that it's directed by the loving hand of our Father who protects us. Do you ever wonder how many perils and disasters we avoid every day because God was protecting us? And it might not have been obvious. You think about our families, the relationships that we share, they're, they're a blessing. Sometimes they don't feel that way, perhaps. But it's not just chance that you ended up in the family that you have. It's God's loving care. It's not just chance that you ended up in this church this morning. It's part of God's loving care. And we could go on and on. All the evidence that we have in our own lives. You ever stop to recognize that? Think about it. Life is not just the roll of the dice. Perhaps you've heard of Matthew Henry. He was a British preacher who lived from 1662 to 1714. He's best known for his commentary he wrote on the whole Bible. But when Matthew Henry was a young man, only 13 years old, 
He showed a lot more spiritual insight and maturity than many of us do. Here's what he wrote in his private journal at that time. He took a page, and at the top he wrote, a catalog of the mercies of God. And here's a few things that he wrote. For the spiritual mercies, for the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession, for grace and pardon and peace, for the word of God, the means of grace, for prayer and for good instruction, for the good I have got at any time under the word, for the help from God under temptation, for brokenness of heart, etc. And he goes on and on. So here at 13 years old, Matthew Henry is essentially counting his blessings, right? Here's a catalog of how God has been merciful to me. Have you taken a, a catalog recently, an inventory of God's goodness and his loving care for you? You look through your life and say, it, it's written all over. Evidence of God's loving care abounds. It's not just luck. One uh, well-known Hollywood star once said, nobody gets justice. You just get good luck or bad luck. For the believer, it's not luck. It's God's loving care evident in our lives. God directs our steps, and our lives testify to that fact. Second lesson, though, I want us to pick up is this. God's faithfulness deserves commemoration. God's faithfulness deserves commemoration. We ought to remember what God has done. And that's exactly what the Jews sought to do here. In this passage, it wasn't enough that they just celebrated a one-time event. They actually make it part of their calendar. Listen to what happens. Verse 20. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent them letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And here we have a slight, a brief explanation, a synopsis, if you will, of the whole book of Esther, verse 23. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them. He had cast the purr, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And, his sons, and so they called these days Purim. After the name Pur, therefore, because all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who had joined them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to what is written in the instructions according to that prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, Every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. That Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, 
and as they had decreed for themselves and that their descendants concerning their matters of fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. This is the institution of the feast known as Purim. And this fits a pattern we've seen in the Old Testament. That is when God does something for his people, there's an emphasis on remembering it, memorializing it, causing it to to not be forgotten. If you remember in Joshua chapter 4, there's an interesting story. God parts the Jordan River before the children of Israel and they cross. And when they do, God tells them, take 12 stones from the river and make a pile of them. And that will be a memorial to you of what happened here this day. And that's kind of a pattern. That God instructs his people, don't forget these things, remember them. And so God's faithfulness deserves to be commemorated. Now, the the Feast of Purim is explained here. And we are told in verse 23 to verse 26, that the reason the Feast is called Purim is because of the pur. The pur, P-U-R, was a lot It was the Babylonian or or Persian word for a lot, a little dice that was cast. Isn't it interesting that this festival which celebrates the deliverance of the Jews is basically called the dice. Or another way you could translate it is it means the roll of the dice. (laughs) So this this feast is saying, well, the roll of the dice. Are they just saying that, hey, we got lucky today? Or is it meant to be kind of ironic? That, that Haman rolled the dice and he was putting it all to chance, but really God was behind the scenes. It says in the book of Proverbs, right? The man throws the, the lot in the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. So the lot is cast, but who's really in control? It's not fate. It's not just destiny. But instead, Purim celebrates the God who directs history. Now, as the events of Esther have unfolded before us, it didn't appear like God was here. He's not mentioned. Everything kind of unfolds in a natural way. There are no miracles. And yet, we see that God was involved. You know, in hindsight, we look back and see it. As one English Puritan wrote, the providence of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. Well, as we look at God's providence in Esther, you have to kind of read backwards a little bit. God had been faithful to Israel, had delivered them again and again, and now he does it again in Esther. Why, though? Why do we need to commemorate God's faithfulness? Let me give you three reasons why, quickly. Number one, to keep us from forgetting what is really important. To keep us from forgetting what's really important. Here's the thing. We are forgetful people, aren't we? And I don't just mean forgetting where your keys are or where you set your Bible down. But I mean we're, we're forgetful even of important things. It's not like we try to be. It just happens. That we're going about our day. We're going through life. And how often do we stop and simply reflect upon the cross, for instance? How often do we stop and, and really think about the, the things that are most important and central to our faith? Unless we have reminders On a regular basis, those things tend to just drift into the background. That's why the Lord instructed us to keep communion, the Lord's table. It's not that as believers uh, we we gain any kind of 
merit or, or salvation through the Lord's table. It's so that we would be reminded again and again. Every time we come to the table, it's, we say, yes, I'm drawn back to the, the central thing, the most important thing, the cross of Jesus. So we need reminders to keep us on the right track, to keep us from forgetting what's really important. Number two, these commemorations or memorials are important to pass on the testimony to future generations. Pass on this, this testimony. Uh, follow your eyes down to verse 28 of chapter 9. These days, it says, should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not be, fail to be observed among the Jews, that the memory of them should not perish from among your descendants. So the whole idea of this festival was that from generation to generation, we wouldn't forget about what happened here. That there would be this echo going down through time that the children and their children and their children after them would hear the story of Esther and God's unseen hand of deliverance, which brought them victory and salvation this day. So it was to keep that alive. It is, by the way, the same thing that was going on in the Passover. Passover, when God delivered them from Egypt, specifically tells us one of the reasons they were supposed to, sl to slaughter the lamb and eat that special Passover meal was that when your children come to you and say, why are we doing this? You could tell them the story. Here's why we're doing it. Because when we were slaves in Egypt, God remembered us and was faithful. So it's to pass on that to future generations. Let me point out one other thing, just as a thought for you, okay? Verse 32 says, so the decree of Esther was confirmed and it was written in the book. Now the question is, which book? Uh, it's probably not talking about the book of Esther here. It's probably talking about the king's records. But let me make this point. That this whole matter was written down. So if we're going to leave a testimony to future generations, I, I don't know, maybe you're somebody who journals or who likes to keep a written record of things. But let me just encourage you, whether you are or not, one way to pass on the testimony of how God has been faithful in your life is to write it down. And maybe that can be in a form of a letter, maybe in a journal or something like that, but something that you can pass on to future generations, to children or grandchildren, and so they can look back and see how God has been faithful in your life. They can see what God had done in and through you. So consider that as a, a, an option. Hey, maybe I can write some of this down. And so leave a testimony for generations yet unborn. Number three, though, this commemoration is important to encourage us in difficult days. When, when times get tough, when we have driven a stake in the ground, if you will, or made that pile of rocks, a remembrance of, yes, here's when God was faithful to me. You can look back on that even in difficult times. So when the Jews, for generations to come, faced more hardship and more oppression, they could always go back to the book of Esther and say, yeah, God was faithful. And every Purim they could celebrate and remember, yes, God delivered us that time. And it was so potent that I read a story that uh, when Jews were brought into the concentration camps in Germany, if any of them was found with the book of Esther in their possession, they would be immediately killed. Because it's almost as if the Nazis knew, we don't want this message of Esther getting out amongst these people. It's a message of hope and of God's protection and God's deliverance of them. 
And so it is. That the Feast of Purim is celebrated to this day. Now if you go to Israel or a Jewish community even in America. The Feast of Purim is a very joyful celebration. It's often more of a kid's holiday nowadays. Uh, Kids will dress up like the characters from Esther. Girls will dress up like Esther and and boys like Haman or Mordecai. In fact, sometimes they'll even put on plays in which they rehearse the events of Esther and usually the little kids will come on and be the different characters, just like we might have a nativity scene. And usually in the Feast of Purim, they will read through the scroll of Esther. And when they do, people that are there in attendance will drown out the name of Haman. So whenever Haman's name is read, because of his wickedness, the people will shout and and make noise and clap their hands and hiss in order to drown out Haman's name. So forever, the generations that have come, Haman's name has been blotted out and Mordecai and Esther exalted. To God's faithfulness was commemorated, was memorialized in this matter of the Lord's or in this matter of Purim. Sometimes God's faithfulness may not always be clear in the moment, and it may feel like things are just unfolding by chance. But it's not so. And when we see God's faithfulness, we ought to memorialize it. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Esther, A Woman of Strength and Dignity, shares a little story about uh, some sharecrop farmers in a struggling Alabama town. Now, they had always grown cotton. That was their main produce, but the town was struggling. And this year, they were hoping to have a big crop, but then the boll weevil came. And the boll weevil destroyed their crop. Well, these farmers were not ready to yet cast in their their, uh, livelihood or move out of town, but they didn't know what to do. And at that moment, it probably felt disappointing. What's, what's this about? Why, God, are you sending the boll weevil to us? Yet some of the farmers decided, we're going to replant. And some of them decided to replant peanuts, because boll weevils apparently won't eat peanuts. And they began to plant some other crops. And that year, they had a tremendous harvest. And that cha- town was transformed from just being a cotton town, which was struggling, to being a thriving town. And you know what the town did? They created a little monument in their town to the boll weevil. A little boll weevil statue commemorating this, this thing, which looked like a bad thing at first, actually transformed our town. And it's now named Enterprise, Alabama. You see, sometimes the events of God's faithfulness and his goodness are not apparent on the front side. When we look back, we see what God was doing. And let me just say, God's faithfulness deserves to be commemorated. Finally, though, the final lesson. The Lord has planned good for us. The Lord has planned good for us. Again, our life is not up to fate, up to chance. God has ordained our steps. He's ordained our days for good. We remember the promise. God works all things out for the good of those who love him. We're called according to his purpose. You know, there used to be a saying, you heard it probably more often, uh, maybe not so much recently, but the statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's true, right? Yeah, we've got to be careful about the way we, how we express it because we don't want to say, God loves you and you're never going to have any more trouble, right? 
Because certainly the Jewish people continued to have trouble even after the days of Esther. We're not trying to say life is a bed of roses unless by that we mean it's got a lot of thorns. The point is, even though there are difficult things, God's plan for us is a good plan. It is. It is for our good. Not always our comfort, but for our good. Those two are not always the same. Look what happens in chapter 10. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now the acts of his power and his might and the account of his greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to the king Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. And the chapter ends. And the book ends. My question is, how can this be a happy ending when the chapter starts out with taxes? How can we have a good ending with taxes? But let's just say the the first verse, it says there was this imposed tax. Well, I think the point is that when Mordecai was advanced, when Mordecai was promoted, it prospered the king. And the whole kingdom now is prospering and flourishing. And even the Jews in the kingdom are having peace and good. Everything kind of works out. It's almost like a happily ever after ending here. It's It's a good end to the story. Mordecai is exalted. Now, we've heard the last of Esther. Presumably, she continues in good favor with the king. But the focus now is on Mordecai. That Mordecai, just like Haman was pulled down, Mordecai is now exalted. And we see God's plans for him were for good. Not only for him personally, you know, him having this great position, but also for his people. Look at verse 3. Mordecai was second to the king, and he was seeking the good of his people. And speaking peace to them. This word peace, you know, is that Hebrew word shalom, which means fullness. It means uh, prosperity, soundness. It means goodness in all of life, that life is well. And that's still the greeting in Israel today, shalom. That's what they say to one another. So Mordecai has put the needs of the Jewish people forefront. And he has helped them. And so it's good for Mordecai. It's a good ending for Esther. It's a good end for the Jewish people in all. Let me just say that God's plans for us are for good. Again, it's not that everything will be smooth or everything will work out just the way we planned that would, but rather that God's plans for us are for our good. And his ultimate plan is that each of us would spend eternity with him in glory. What could be better? All the thorns of this life are a small thing compared to the glory that's to be revealed. So even if life deals us a rough hand, so to speak, the glory to come certainly makes all the suffering of this life worth it. So when I say God's plan for us is good, it doesn't mean it's absent of any hardship or pain, but it is for our good. God's plan for you is not just blind chance, but it's the good that he has appointed. And that's where this book of Esther ends. It ends with a celebration of Purim, the the roll of the dice. 
You know, the book of Esther reminds me of a fine painting. Imagine this, this beautiful landscape. And yet nowhere on the painting is there a signature to be found. We look around and, and there's no name written on it. And yet, we all know who the painter is because we recognize his work. So is the book of Esther. God's name is not here mentioned. But if you, if you look closely at the book, you can't deny that God is there. Even though his name isn't signed, the painting is clearly his. The painter is obvious. Let me close with a couple of final observations on the book of Esther. Number one, God is present and active even when he is not detected. God is present and active even when he is not detected. Even when God's presence is not obvious, maybe when God's presence is not even felt, that doesn't mean God has stopped working. He is very much there. One author said it like this, more secret than diplomacy, deeper than the investigations of the wise, and mightier than all kingly power is the providence of God. Hidden though it may be, yet powerful. So as you look at your own life, it's not chance, it's not the roll of the dice, it's God's loving care in directing you. And even when it may not seem like he is there, he is. And he is at work. Secondly, though, we ought to trust God even when you don't understand the details. Trust God even when you don't understand the details. All through the story, Esther and Mordecai have been, in a sense, flying blind. They haven't known what God's plans were. They didn't know how things were going to turn out. Esther, when she stood before the, the king, thought this might be her last day. And yet... Even though they didn't understand, God was working. And we ought to trust the God who is at work, even when we don't understand. Jeremiah Day once wrote, The longer I live, the more faith I have in providence, and the less faith in my interpretation of providence. So the longer I live, the more faith I have in providence and the less faith I have in my interpretation of it. Because sometimes we don't always understand. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes we don't get the details. The call is for us to trust. To trust the God who sometimes appears to be absent. To trust the Lord who is directing our lives at all things according to his will. And he is a God whom you can trust. Our lives are not left up to fate. It is the direction and the plan of our loving Father.